You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Good morning. Our sermon text today is from Hosea 14. Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled in your iniquity. Take words of repentance with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our iniquity and accept what is good, so that we may repay you and with praise from our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will no longer proclaim our gods to the work of our hands, for the fatherless receives compassion in you. I will heal their apostasy. I will freely love them, for my anger will have turned from him. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily and take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His new branches will spread, and his splendor will be like the olive tree, his fragrance like the forest of Lebanon. The people will return and live beneath his shade. They will grow grow grain and blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim, why should I have anything more to do with idols? It is I who answer and watch over him. I am like a flourishing pine tree. Your fruit comes from me. Let whoever is wise understand these things, and whoever is insightful recognize them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. This is God's word. So this morning I am enthusiastic to jump into Hosea, but there's a lot going on. So I think as we go and dive into what is the longest of the minor prophets, and we continue our series that we started last week in the book of the 12, I invite you to pray with me this morning that God would be with us, that his spirit would guide our study, and that he would teach us. Let's pray. Father, in your kindness, you have given us your word, and Lord, Hosea is a gift to the church. God, I pray that as we spend this time together in Hosea, that you will illuminate for us in your spirit what is the true depth of your love and compassion and mercy towards us in Christ. God, give us a renewed hope in this world that is full of idolatry and grant us a discernment and a determination Lord, to pursue pursue you and the knowledge of your Son. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So when I was in high school, um, I was uh, really rather involved in um, youth group in my church. Uh, I, I, I went to about every youth group outing or event or activity that there was going on, and there's a lot of different reasons maybe behind that, but I was at every gathering, even to the point that um, I was selected. I don't even remember how it happened or what goes on there, but they selected me for something called the Youth Council, okay? I'm not bragging. This is not a bragging thing. Like, it was just like I showed up, Uh, but um, this Youth Council was apparently a group of the high schoolers that were uh, helping to kind of help make decisions, I guess, in some faux way. <laughs> we could be helping the youth leaders uh, in, in determining events, activities, things that went on. Uh, not much more than that. But I was heavily involved in that respect. But the idea of pursuing any kind of pastoral ministry really was not appealing to me. 
which is ironic. I mean, doing what I'm doing here was like, eh, <laughs> I'm all right. And part of the reason, I think, honestly, for some of that, you know, I mean, 1 Peter 3.15 tells us to be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that's in you. Okay, the hope that's in me. And I don't know that I really necessarily overwhelmingly felt a reality of hope to share. Like, like my own experience, I don't think, at least in what I was taught, and this is in no way trying to throw shade on the people who taught me. I, I, I am friends with and know and love many of those people that were leaders around me at the time. I think it was a, a, a nature, in nature of the environment and the type of teaching and instruction in the church and the structures that I was involved with that oftentimes was more shame-driven that was oftentimes trying to encourage you in some way to just white-knuckle it and do better. If that's not the message they were trying to get across, it's what I was getting. And, and, and that could have been the enemy deceiving me, but I'm just telling you honestly, it didn't feel, that doesn't feel helpful. And, and, and especially around that time, it was really popular, and even now, I mean, but there was this movement within the youth and high schoolers for purity and pursuing that. And there was a lot of shame attached with anything less than that. I remember a particular illustration that was used at a, at a service that was at. This is how it stands out so much. You know, like I don't remember every, every lesson I got, but I remember this illustration. Because, because the teacher pulls out this candy bar. I don't even know what it was. It was chocolate, so I wanted it. All right. And, and he opens up, takes out the wrappers, or he takes this out the camera. Anybody want this? Oh, I'd love to have that. Bunch of high schoolers, right? Give me that. He says, well, hold on a second. He opens it up. He says, look, it's real chocolate. Do me a favor. Let's pass this around. Everybody takes a look at it, hands on it, grubby little nasty high school hands. Who knows where they've been? Drops it on the floor, wherever it goes like this. I remember this illustration because it got back to the front. And at that point, he says, who wants it now? Okay, it's got like a little like carpet hairs hanging off of it. Who knows what else? Nobody wants it. And to my shame, I actually can remember thinking of particular people that that probably applied to. Not me, I was good, right? In my own eyes. And, and I also remember later, even better than this, an illustration by a pastor in Texas, his name's Matt Chandler, that came about and went, went crazy probably over a decade ago. You can still find it online. I encourage you. He goes, been to this way better than I do. But where he talks about bringing this 26-year-old single mom to a service, he even talks about being shady and getting her there, trying to like get, she thought it was a concert and there was actually a message, you know. But they've been ministering to her and encouraging her. She even was in a relationship with a married man at the time. Okay, so she's definitely just open to hearing what the gospel is and able to come there. But when he gets there, he says, they give one of these messages. And he take out a rose and this beautiful rose, perfect, all nice and set up and says, hey, this is rose is awesome. This is great. You see this rose? It's a beautiful rose. Hey, I want everybody to see this rose. Here, everyone pass this around. And by the time he gets to the end of his little talk and he gets to the front, he holds up the rose and you, you might imagine there's petals falling off of it. It's a broken stem. It's all shady looking. It's not, and he holds it up. And the way the Matt delivers this, it says that his big crescendo is, 
Who wants this rose now? And he's sitting here next to this, this woman that probably feels this. And the, and the thing that Matt fights himself to stand up and say is, Jesus wants the rose. And when we look at Hosea, the prophet Hosea is actually inspired by God. In totality of 14 chapters, this entire text, the longest one of the minor prophets, it's first in here, not because it's first not because it's first chronologically, but because it has the most comprehensive coverage of everything that the minor prophets are trying to say. It sums it up so clearly and so directly, and it does it with a colorful arrangement of all of the kind of literary devices you can imagine. It's got puns in it. My man is awesome with puns. And his similes and metaphors that are trademark of Hosea, and all of it written in such a way to tell us just that, that Jesus wants the broken. That God wants those who are straying and lost. Hosea's entire message and home life are set up as a tragedy to illustrate for us one thing, that the God most high is just and compassionate and his desire for us is relationship and restoration. And that's hope. See, in the text of Hosea, there are three underlying realities that are illustrated in Hosea's life, just in the way that God tells him and directs him and commands him to live, that show for us this very truth about God. And the first thing is demonstrated in Hosea's life is the allure of lifeless idols. I say allure intentionally because it's seductive. Lifeless idols. Hosea's uses of harlotry and adultery as metaphors for idolatry, and they pervade the entire book, and it starts out that way. In Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, God tells him, when the Lord spoke to Moses, I'm sorry, to Hosea, he said this to him, Go and marry a woman of promiscuity and have children of promiscuity, for the land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. So he went and married Gomer, daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. So right out of the gate, Hosea's call to ministry is go marry someone who's promiscuous. Like literally, we know this lady lives this way, you marry her. Out of the gate, which by the way, She's already broken, and he marries her. We're already broken, and God knows it. I'm talking culturally speaking, right? In this term, she is seen. We know from other illustrations that she's not well accepted within culture. This isn't the norm of society. And other women probably are aware of her life. And God tells Hosea, go marry her and have kids with her. Why? Because the entire land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity against me by abandoning the Lord. Connecting directly in explicit terms that idolatry and, and straying from God himself is as devastating as breaking a relationship in harlotry and adultery. It's colorful language. If you're someone who loves literature and poetry, I'm just not really super skilled at poetry, need to learn some more. Ezekiel knows, he's shaking his head yes. He's like, yeah. But 
But they use so many devices because here's the deal. The, the almost overwhelming truths and realities of, of, of God and his love and compassion for us can't be captured in simple words. Because Hosea is told, you go out after this woman and he marries this woman prone to infidelity. Really, honestly, he's set up for heartbreak. This is your wife. She's your life. And it's set up as an example of idolatry because in reality for us, idolatry, and I think this is a helpful, at least definition, a working one I'm trying to, to work through, but that idolatry is giving our trust, our love, and ultimate loyalty to something or someone other than God and seeking from them what only God can truly provide us. I mean, we see this throughout the rest of the illustration. Gomer is still unfaithful and goes off to her other men. And God, throughout the rest of Hosea, shows us how Israel is doing the same thing. They do it in Baal worship, the Canaanite god Baal. They go after them in explicit forms of idolatry. They set up, they set up high places and worship Baal. They sacrifice to him. It's interesting enough, actually, there's criticisms of historical views of the Bible and say, well, the Jews weren't monotheistic. That was a developed thing later in life. No, we know they weren't monotheistic. That's the problem. God keeps talking about it. There's still God, one, one God who is most high, and they're not following him. They're seeking security. It says fertility from these gods instead of trusting in the Lord. He also points out the fact that they're seeking political alliances. Israel sought protection from foreign powers like Egypt and Assyria rather than relying on God for their security. They were making compromise. It says that they were pursuing material wealth. Israel's prosperity led them to forget God, attributing their success to their own hands. Like these are the things, look what I did for myself. Look how I built this place. I'm secure in that. Not trusting God ultimately, for he's the one, as, as he gives the example of Gomer, she runs off to the other husbands, th imagining that they're the ones providing for him and not recognizing that God's the one that gives her all good things. There's religious ritual that Israel is tied up into. Hosea criticizes not just the worship of other gods, but also the empty religious rituals that Israel practice thinking they were to gain them favor with God, disconnected from a life of justice and mercy. That's what he talks about when, he, when Jesus comes to the Pharisees. He actually quotes this passage in Hosea, where the people are, are coming in with their sacrifices, they're coming in with the, the right rituals of religion, but the reality of their life was completely opposite of that. And in Hosea 6.6, 6, Hosea tells them, I desire faithful love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. It's not about religious ritual. It's not about you. I joke a little bit. Thanks for being here on Labor Day weekend. But that's not your salvation, right? Uh, recent conversation talks about, I've had a recent conversation with David about, 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 about checklist religion, 
where he talks about growing up in an environment where you're making it to service and Sunday service on day. These are admirable things and helpful things that build a life. But if you rely on this for your salvation, then you're relying on the wrong thing. And that's what Hosea tells Israel. They were also guilty of moral decay. They were unfaithful in their religion, but there's also social injustices prevalent in Israel. There was corruption, there was dishonesty, there was violence. They had turned away from God's law and they were trusting in all of these things to fill the gap. Israel, as in Hosea 2.13, was set up for failure because they were cheating on God. <laughs> they were adulterating. They were going into the community and finding every other thing that could satisfy and fill them. And with that, with our draw and our seduction towards idolatry, there's judgment. Hosea 2.13 says, I will punish her for the days of the Baals, to which she burned incense. She put on her rings and her jewelry and followed her lovers, but she forgot me. Like all those other things were where they were trying to get their hope. They, Gomer was drawn away to other lovers and it goes in between, in and out, where, where the Lord weaves in and out and says, this is what your wife is like because this is what Israel's doing to me. And as a, within even Gomer's life, judgment and consequences that come from sin are illustrated in her kids. Can you imagine you have, you have your kids are brought into the picture to name? The reason is because because with promiscuity of her life, with her unfaithfulness, her idolatry towards God, the fruit of that is going to be this. Right? With an unfaithful marriage, the fruit of that, the children within that, bear the weight. And so Hosea has kids with Gomer, and the Lord said to name the first son Jezreel, for in a little while I will bring the bloodshed of Israel on the house of Jehu and put an end to the kingdom of house of Israel. So here we go, Jezreel, the first name. By the way, it means the Lord scatters in this term. Essentially coming in for judgment, scattering the people. They're no longer together. Verse five, on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in Jezreel Valley. In verse six, he says, she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel. Her name is literally no compassion or no pity. Hey, it's a girl. What are you going to name her? No compassion. None. None whatsoever. I will certainly take them away, but I will have compassion on the house of Judah, and I will deliver them by the Lord their God. I will not deliver them by bow, sword, or war, or the horse, or cavalry. He makes a distinction here. He separates and scatters Israel and Judah, and he says, I'm going to still protect and have compassion on Judah, but I'm going to do it by my own strength, not by war. In verse 8, it says, After Gomer had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son, and the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. First day of class, what's up? Is not my people here. Not my people? Hello? Yes, yeah, me, Lo-Ami. Ami is my people. Lo, as you can see, is not, or a negation. And in this case, Hosea's children, the fruit of idolatry, the fruit 
of a sinful life or demonstrated to show what happens, the judgment, that, that we are scattered in our life, that there are consequences to our sin, that, there, that we are identifying ourselves with another. We're not God's people when we're living in sin. And that God cannot have compassion on those who don't come to him for it. So then, my dear friends, in 1 Corinthians 10, 14, Paul tells us, flee from idolatry. You know, we are fooling ourselves to think that putting our trust in anything in this world is short of severe idolatry. C.S. Lewis says that all that is not eternal is eternally useless. That for us to think that there's something we can invest our time and our energies and our power and our loves and our affections to in this world that has any eternal value is a fool's game. That to think that there's something of value that we can gain and earn from going after power, going after money, going after some love or relationship at the expense of our relationship and our love and our devotion and our affection to the one true God who has given us all good things. And that's foolishness. The weight of idolatry is what Hosea is trying to show in his marriage, what God is showing us in Hosea. That idolatry is seductive, it's alluring, it draws us away like someone who's promiscuous who goes after other lovers. And it's not funny. It's devastating with consequences. Because we're outside of God's will. We don't follow him. We don't love him. We don't serve him. We can't experience his compassion and his protection because we are willingly going outside of that and looking for others to provide it for us. And they're lifeless. And their promises are empty. We are drawn to give our life over to lifeless idols. But even in the fact that Hosea gives us such a devastating example and illustration of what, what uh, idolatry is in our life, he then comes around right behind us and shows us that God's faithful love is poured out on unfaithful people. Look at Hosea 3, 1 through 3, what the Lord says to me. He says, go again now and show love to a woman who is loved by another man. Gomer has gone off to other men. All right? And she's an adulteress. And then he says, why are you doing that? Just as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and they love raisin cakes. Now that's an interesting little line there. I don't know if you guys have raisin cakes or a thing you like about it. I just want to be clarifying here. It's connected with Baal worship. There's other, words, other places in passages, like we're in Solomon, where we see that it seems there's some sort of aphrodisiac connection with that as well. So just saying it's, it's connected with the seduction and sexuality of Baal worship. And so he says they loved those raisin cakes. So what did Hosea do? He had to buy his wife back for 15 shekels of silver and nine bushels of barley. And I said to her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be promiscuous or belong to any man, and I will act the same way towards you. Despite... Gomer's betrayal, she is literally indebted and on the slave block because that's where sin leads us into bondage and slavery. Hosea buys her back. And culturally speaking, he did not owe that to her. Like today, that would be, be crazy 
You had a friend, right, whose wife or husband had run off like this? Like, it'd be really hard pressed for you to say, go after that. Make that the rest of your life. Buy her back. Oh, she's prostituting herself? Pay for it. He bought her. And it only is a foreshadow to what the fact that God must buy us. He purchases us. He pays the price for us that we couldn't pay for ourselves because Gomer couldn't pay it. Gomer was enslaved to what she had pursued, the life she was leading. <clears throat> and in the same way with Israel, God says that the number of Israelites in verses 10 through 20, uh, chapter 1 verses 10 through 2 1 in that passage following when he first tells them the judgment and the consequences of sin he immediately follows back and says i'm going to show you compassion though look at that the number of israelites will be like the sand of the sea which cannot be measured or counted and in the place where they were told you were not my people they will be called sons of the living god you know what i said not my people that's what sin does to you but i'm going to make you my people your sons and the Judeans and the Israelites will be gathered together, not scattered. He reuses Jezreel. Instead of scattered, it's actually the God the Lord sows. He sees a harvest. They will appoint for themselves a single ruler and go up from the land, for the day of Jezreel will be great. I call your brothers my people and your sisters compassion. He takes the low off. Low's gone. You're now my people. You're now shown compassion. He goes on in Hosea chapter 11, verses 8 and 9, and says, How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I surrender you, Israel? How can I make you like Admon? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Those are countries, those are nations that aren't his people. He said, I have had a change of heart. My compassion is stirred. I will not vent the full fury of my anger. I will not turn back to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in rage. Even though our idolatry and our sin is rightfully deserving of God's wrath and punishment, he says, I'm not bringing it. I want to bring you compassion. I want to show you my love. His rightful anger is overridden by the fact that he wants to demonstrate his boundless mercy. This entire book is a metaphor, an illustration of God's steadfast love. That's what faithful love is, steadfast love. It's one of those words, remember I said how words fail over and over again. Do a word study, it's fun. <laughs> Look through scripture Chesed. I'm not going to say it like a good Jew. I can't, Israelite Hebrew, I can't say it. Chesed is the right way for putting that. Okay, I'm serious. God's faithful love, his, his steadfast love, his compassion, his mercy, all wrapped up into that word. It's what we'll learn later, what made Jonah mad about going to Assyria. Because he knew God was going to be faithful to forgive those who came to him. And it's what Paul talks about when he says, you were dead in sins in Ephesians, but God who is rich in mercy. That word, same one that they translate and they use across the board to describe God's steadfast love. 
And he does when he looks at us in Romans 5, 8, he looks at those who are sinners and God proves his own love for us. While we were sinners, he, Christ died for us. That's, that's the reality of what Hosea is demonstrating towards Israel in his marriage, in his purchase of Gomer that we, uh, we are able to experience and live in today. Like we are idolatrous people who are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That song hits. It slaps. You know what I'm saying? I don't know. I don't want to say the cool. My kids are groaning. But it's real. Because we are prone to wander. Yet God is full of faithful love. In fact, I love how C.S. Lewis puts the fact that he has made us in a way specifically for us to show him to show his love towards us. He says it this way, God who needs nothing loves into existence holy, superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. That's what we're here for, for him to pour out his love for us. That's what Paul goes on to in Ephesians and says that his compassion is poured out on us so that he can for all eternity show his grace and compassion to the entire universe. Like that, listen, if God is trying to show off and he wants to do it that way, I'm down. And he offers it freely. Faithful love to unfaithful people. And the third reality within that that demonstrated the underlying reality in this book of Hosea is that God's boundless mercy is for broken hearts, broken people, broken people, broken hearts. Hosea 2, 1, uh, 2, 14 through 23 reads, therefore I'm going to persuade her, lead her to the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her vineyards back to her and make the valley of a core into a gateway of hope. There she will respond as she did in the days of her youth, as in the days she came out of the land of Egypt. In that day, this is the Lord's declaration, you will call me my husband and no longer call me my Baal. For I will remove the name of the Baal from your mouth. They will no longer be remembered by their names. On that day, I will make a covenant for them with the wild animals, the birds of the sky, and the creatures that crawl on the ground, I will shatter bow, sword, and weapons of war in the land and enable the people to rest securely. I will take you to be my wife forever, and I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, justice, love, and compassion. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. What's going on in here? He takes Hosea, I'm sorry, he takes Gomer, Hosea does, and God demonstrates this to his people. He says he takes him into the wilderness and speaks tenderly to her. You know the wilderness is? It's chaos. That's what, that's what the Bible's talking about with that. It's judgment is the wilderness. Like when Israel wanders between Egypt and, and, and the promised land and they're in the wilderness, they're in a place of judgment and chaos, right? Whenever we see a good and whole and right thing, something that's God's created way and, and, and has um, wholeness, it's usually a garden, right? Anybody here have a hard time like turning their backyard wilderness into a garden? Right. Okay. <laughs> All right. You can understand, you can understand the struggle. When things are just chaos, 
that's what wilderness is. And God says, I will take her into the wilderness. That means that as a purifying exercise, he willingly leads us into discipline. And what does he do while we're there with, I love this. I love this illustration of the Lord. He doesn't send her into the wilderness. He leads her to the wilderness. And while there, he speaks tenderly to her. While sin has consequence and is rightfully judged, God with his own children will discipline them lovingly. And in that place, while he's speaking tenderly, he says he's gonna give back all those things like the vineyard. He's gonna give her a gateway of hope that she would respond to him in those days of her youth, knowing that all these things are from him. And then the phrase here that he uses, you will call me my husband and no longer call me my Baal. See, that's that, that, that uh, distinction I talked about at the beginning where we have this distorted view of who God is. My Baal is my master. To see God as one lording over you who is waiting for failure or is standing in judgment for you to just get it right. He says, you don't wanna call, you're not gonna call me my master anymore. What's he say? You'll call me my husband, my partner, my love. The intimacy that God wants to demonstrate that he wants with his people, his relationship with him is not one of who lords over you, who looks at you in judgment as a master, but rather as a husband. He's gonna remove all those other masters from her mouth. He's gonna take away their name from their mouth and he's gonna take in him in his wife in righteousness, justice, love, and compassion. And then the passage ends this way. On that day, I will respond. This is the Lord's declaration. I will respond to the sky. I will respond to the earth. The earth will respond to the grain, the new wine, the fresh oil, and they will respond to Jezreel, the sowing, not the scattering, and I will sow her in the land for myself, and I will have compassion on Lo Ruhama. I will say to Lo Ami, you are my people, and he will say, you are my God. That's the hope in Hosea, that he will lead you through dark times and be with you and speak tenderly to you and love you, and on the other side of that say, you are my people, and we can say, you are my God. You're my master. You're my God. In Israel, he explicitly says that what we read in, verse Hosea, in Hosea 14, where he says that I will heal their apostasy. I will freely love them, for my anger will have turned from him. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily and take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His new branches will spread. Look, listen to all this. God says, I will heal them. I will bless them. I will do all these things. Even though they were unfaithful to me, I will restore them. The people will return and live beneath his shade. They will grow grain blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. Israel is to be restored. And brothers and sisters, for you and I, it's as simple as 1 John puts it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It truly is. Like to come to God with all of our messed up stuff Thank, and idolatry and adultery and he says I cleanse you of that rest beneath my wings I will be your husband I will be your God 
and you will be my people. And I will say over and over and over again, this has been something I hope you take to heart. You do not have to clean yourself up to come to the Father. Oh, and more than that, you don't need to clean anybody else up to bring them to Jesus. What you're pronouncing is merely the hope that you have in him. That I was unrighteous, I was filthy, I was broken, I was pursuing all the world had to offer me, and yet he showed me great mercy and kindness because when I came running back to him, God pours out his forgiveness to me in Christ. That's our hope. It's not that you all of a sudden start getting it right now. Oh man, I appreciate it. This illustration, I'm gonna use it. I'll give credit to David because he said it. But as you live with the Lord, he shines a light more and more brighter in your heart and your life. And I will tell you this, even though as you start to clean things up, quote unquote, he'll expose other things. The most faithful and growing people I know in the faith in the church have seen their deepest darkness. And they know all that God has forgiven. It's only in him exposing in grace, like leading you into the wilderness, that he exposes with his light the depth of darkness in you, that he can refine you and purify you and make you more like his son. And then when we see that in ourselves, like you see that sinfulness and that idolatry stir up because in his grace he's exposed it in your life. You don't run away and panic and hide yourself from God because you are afraid of him, but rather you run to him because he has already poured out so much mercy and compassion on you in Christ that he forgives and he is guiding and he is refining. Repentance and confession are the pathways to restoration in Christ. And it it's, I don't know about you, but it only stirs up in me more and more of a desire to run away from idolatry that is apart and against God. I love how Charles Spurgeon words this. Charles Spurgeon writes this. He says, if Christ has died for me, ungodly as I am, without strength as I am, then I cannot live in sin any longer. I must arouse myself to love and serve him who has redeemed me. I cannot trifle with the evil that killed my best friend. I must be holy for his sake. How can I live in sin when he has died to save me from it? <laughs> Hosea's message is not one of hopelessness. No, oh, no, no, no. It, it reveals the depth of darkness in our lives. And brothers and sisters, if you say you're without sin, you're lying to yourself. And I'll say again, go ask your relatives. They'll tell you. Someone will be honest with you, hopefully. But the beauty and hope of the gospel is that in Christ, God has poured out his mercy and his love on unfaithful people. And there is abundant boundless mercy available to all who come to him. The God most high is just and compassionate in his desire for us is relationship and it's restoration. He picks up a broken rose and he puts it back together. 
and it's even more beautiful than when it started. Let's pray. Father, in your kindness, you have demonstrated such love to us. And God, I pray that in Hosea, we see beyond a shadow of a doubt the immutable, immeasurable, boundless mercy that you've poured out on your people. God, in your kindness, you've given your son for us. And God, I pray that we trust in him more and more every day. Show us the way to be more like Christ as you expose in our hearts and our minds the depth of the darkness of the sin that we pursue and that your hope shines all the more brighter. God, we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.